My guest today is a prevalent member of AA, just a phenomenal person, so young at heart, easy to get along with, with over half a century of sobriety. Give it up for Bill. Bill, everybody. Let's start off with a little bit of your backstory and what led you to recovery. I don't know that the story is so much different than any any other alcoholic. Or I, uh, I grew up in a family that if you looked at it from the outside, it would look like a Norman Rockwell cartoon. Uh, I, uh, And I, I guess I grew up feeling like I was not—I was never a part of. I'd watch other people, and they seemed to enjoy each other and have fun and laugh. And I could put up a good show, but it, I never felt it. And uh, when I started to drink, it was a way, I, I guess, that, to feel like I was part of the crowd and part of the gang. And. Uh, and so that's what I did, and, and when I first started to drink, it was a lot of fun. I had a good time, good time with it. Uh, but I went to a, a small private college, and uh, they, they just had no, no drinking at all, on or off campus while you were registered as a student. And of course, everybody pretty ignored, much ignored that as when they were off campus, but uh, but it did slow my drinking down. So, you know, most most guys that come from that, that kind of a family that I did, uh, their, their drinking picks up during their college years. And for me, it was the other way around. It slowed it down. And uh, as soon as I was out of school, I started to drink heavily. And again, it was a lot of fun. I. Uh, But it finally got to the point where I couldn't I couldn't relax and enjoy myself unless I was drinking. So every day, it was a daily thing. I drank every day, and uh, and it also took more and more to get me to that point. I started out just a fairly light beer drinker, and eventually it, it got to the point where I couldn't get really as high as I wanted to get on on just beer because of the volume. I, could, I just couldn't drink that much, so I switched to uh, bourbon and water, uh, and uh, you okay? Yeah. Okay. I uh, and then it got to the point where it was hard to even drink enough to. To uh, to get high even even on whiskey, so I decided that I would have to slow down. Eventually, I got to the point where I realized it was becoming a problem and I would have to quit. So I would go on the wagon and tell everybody that I wasn't drinking anymore. And I don't know how long those periods lasted, but it was never more than a couple days. And I I could get basically sober, but the withdrawals were bad by that time. And uh, I don't know how many times I went through that dry out, get, get reasonably sober, and then 
decide one drink couldn't hurt me. And I'd have that one drink and it would feel so good. And I'd think, well, if that makes me feel that good, maybe two would do even better and it'd be two. And uh, the next thing I knew, I thought, if I feel this good tonight, I couldn't possibly be sick tomorrow. And I told myself that lie over and over and over again. I don't know how many times I went through that. But I just, uh, she'll, she'll record. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's this, the stage I was in when I made my first contact with AA. And uh, I went to have an identification picture taken for a real estate license. And the photographer took one look at me. He was an old friend. I had known him since I was 12, 13 years old. And uh, he said, what's wrong with you? You look terrible. And I was a, I was a, a sponsor's dream because I just looked at him and said, John, I drink too much and I, I can't. I've tried to stop and I can't. And he said, get your coat. And he took me to Mrs. Northeastern Ohio, where AA started. And uh, so he took me to a five-day detox. And uh, I never went through that, that clinic as a patient, but I would sit in their coffee shop every, every day and listen to the people coming in and working with guys they were sponsoring and talking about the program. And I really never talked to anybody because if I tried to talk to people, I started to shake and I didn't like that. So in those first weeks, first probably five, five weeks or so were really tough because I knew that one drink and I would feel better. And that was, so the temptation was always there. But I had been through that over and over and over again before I came in the program. So I knew that if I gave into it, then sooner or later I was going to have to do the same thing all over again, and I didn't ever want to have to go through. My withdrawals were really bad, and it was, you know, you're going back a lot of years, so it was before, before, before there were clinics and, and programs on every every street corner. I mean, they're all over the place now, but in those days there there was very little, and I was lucky to to be. To be in Ohio, some of the AA pioneers were still alive, and uh, so I had a chance to, to at least sit and listen to them, even if I didn't talk very much. A lot of people thought that I was permanently brain damaged because I just never talked to anybody. I just sat and stared, and, uh, and that's the way it started, and that was, it'll be 53 years in September, and uh, I never had another drink after I made my first AA meeting. Wow. So, and for me, it worked almost exactly the way that, that AA's big book says, says it will work. And when I decided to turn my will and my life over to the care of a higher power, I really meant it. And I, I, I wasn't at all sure that it would work for me, but I saw, you know, hundreds of people that it was working for, and I thought, this is a, this is a chance, at least, a chance to lead, to lead a normal, decent life. And so I tried. And I can't say, looking back now, that I ever did it perfectly, but but I did try, and and the willingness to to change or to be changed by by the program was there. So even if I wasn't doing it perfectly, the willingness to to grow and to change was was there, and it was an act of desperation, really. So how would you say that someone is to surrender, and what does it look like? I've already told you I didn't know then. I'm not so sure that I do know now. I don't think so much anymore. 
about sur surrender. Most, most people, most men anyway, don't like the idea of surrendering to anything. So I really think more of it as merging. Since I don't believe in a, in a personal kind of higher power, uh, it fits for the overall philosophy of what I, what I do believe. And for me, reality is an endless infinity of, of energy. And all energy has a signature, and the signature is the frequency. So everything that you can be aware of is part of that. So you don't... Well, I guess, I guess there, there are different stages of mysticism. Some, some mystics will try and make a conscious contact with that kind of higher power, and they'll use it. They'll try and, and get it to work the way they want it to work in their lives. And then there's the ones that just give up and surrender to it. And I'm, I'm the second. I try not to inflict my will on it at all. And just with the realization that, that whatever strength I have, it, it, and the big book says it, says it pretty well, that there's only one, one source of power and it has all power. And they say God, God has all power. And I don't, I don't mind the word God. Uh, but it means something different for me than it does for most people. Like I said, I think of it as frequency, and I think the individual consciousness of the people in general have, have their frequency. And the closer you can get your frequency to match the universal frequency, the more it pours through you and, and lights up uh, intuition in your life. And, and again, it's the ninth step, you know, talks talks about the gifts, and the gifts start to flow through your consciousness and your mind, and if whatever goes through your mind begins to manifest itself in a third-dimensional world. Well, that's a lot, and it, it is, and you can you could spend a lifetime. There's there's no real arrival anywhere where you where you totally learned everything that that there is to learn. I always think about. And I think it was Einstein that talked about drawing a little circle on a, on a blackboard or on a wall. And everything that touches the circle is the unknown. And as, as it touches the surface of the circle, you incorporate it into what you do know. And so the, your circle grows. And obviously, if it grows that much, it's, it's touching more of the unknown than it was when it was like this. So you, you just keep growing and growing and growing. And, and I think it's hard for any of us to get a, a grip on what's infinite. Uh, but, I, but I like that analogy, that, that little circle thing. Einstein was really great. People think that he was an atheist. I'm not so sure that's true at all. So what, why is the spiritual aspect of the program vital for long-term sobriety? Because for me, I really do believe that it's the source of all power, and you need you need that to stay sober. And just the idea of starting to get the gifts of that are mentioned after the ninth step in the program will encourage you. I I, I think about spiritual awakening and spiritual experience differently. I think most of the things that are mentioned in the ninth step are spiritual experience. 
the awakening is when you begin to identify more with an Eastern philosophy where that, that endless infinity of, of energy is everything. Everything is part of that. And in a lot of ways, you are its consciousness. It lights, it lights up in your consciousness. I, uh, I had only been sober about so somewhere in my first year when I, I met a man who became a spiritual advisor. And uh, in 30-some years of friendship, I never heard him say an unkind word about or to anyone, ever. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever met anybody else like that. And if, if something negative did start in a conversation that he was part of, he would immediately change it. And I don't know how he did that because you didn't notice the fact that he was actively changing the subject, but he always did. There was a woman that I wanted on one of our boards of directors, and I had nominated her a number of times, and he never said anything, but every time I would nominate her, eventually we would end up talking about something else. And you don't notice, or I don't know how he did that, but you didn't notice the fact that he was changing the conversation. And I finally just point blank asked him one day, I said, Bruce, is there some reason that you don't want this woman on the board? And a few minutes later, I realized we were talking about something else, and I still don't know how he did it. <laughs> but I don't know what he was like when he was a young man, but I know what he was like as a late middle-aged man. He, he just didn't. He just didn't participate in things like that, that's all. Wow. And his wife was very close to being the same. She, uh, maybe not quite as advanced as he was, but pretty much. So, I know you've talked a lot about um, prayer and meditation in meetings. And I guess for people who are not to the ninth step and don't really understand the importance of what that looks like. What are you? Um, what are your thoughts on prayer and meditation? More importantly, meditation. Again, it's, it's your conscious contact with your higher power. <clears throat> so, from my point of view, it, it has to be sooner or later. But people will come into the program and they'll ignore that part of it, and they might mouth it, but they don't actually do it, and. Uh, I'm not sure that I understand your question. How to get them to do it, or why is it important that they yeah, do it? Yeah, the importance of prayer meditation, in your opinion. Well, for long-term sobriety, I think it's an absolute. It has to be. And if prayer, when you're thinking, if you follow my, my line of thinking, where that kind of higher power doesn't have a personality, it doesn't recognize good or bad, it, and I heard you say in a meeting one night, and it surprised me because I don't know where you got it, whether you picked it up from me or whether you got it from someplace else, but you said that kind of higher power didn't, didn't plan on creating a universe or anything like that. It just happened in the wake of its energy, and I buy that. Uh, so that when you pray to it, you're not praying to something that recognizes your prayer or that's pacified by your prayer or or even changed by your prayer, because it just simply doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Uh, what you're really doing is conditioning your own mind when you pray, and you're setting a, 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 a pattern up in, inside your, 
your personal self that will allow that that kind of energy to flow into your consciousness. When it flows into your consciousness, it automatically flows out into the into the third dimensional world. In meditation, that is well. I'm not sure sure that I distinguish very much anymore between the two. Meditation is the actual. The praying is is setting your own mindset up, and from most people's point of view, it's the talking to God. And meditation is listening, just to get quiet. And meditation means different things to different people. For some people, it's just finding something that they that they really find relaxing and enjoying, and they 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 do that. I I usually reread the. St. Augustine prayer a couple times a day, and it does both. It's both a prayer and a meditation for me. <clears throat> so since this is kind of directed more so to people who maybe aren't in the best spot, as in they don't make it to meetings or they don't know what they want for themselves, um, how would you recommend to persevere through negative thinking, like the thoughts of, oh, I can't do it, or I, I don't stand a chance, kind of that sort of thinking or mindset? I don't know that you can do very much about that except encourage them to keep making, making meetings, to keep contact with people that are doing well in recovery. Uh, but you see an awful lot of it in AA and especially uh, the younger people coming in, both by age and by time in the program younger. You see just hundreds and hundreds of faces that you see once or twice and you don't see them again. And that's too bad, but I don't know that there's anything that we can do about that except hope that pain's a good teacher. And they're gonna fall flat on their faces and they're gonna hurt. And I don't know that there's very much that you can do about that. And sometimes I think to try and help them too much, this is going to be gossipy, I suppose, in a way, but I mean, it's a beautiful example. You know? Yeah. People have, have enabled him for years. When he gets drunk, they take care of him. I think it's one of the big reasons that we got forced to move out of the old meeting hall because he had, he had caused so much trouble, sleeping out in the parking lot, falling up and down the stairs, uh, the cops arriving, just time after time after time, the, call, the cops got called, and, uh, and we really enabled him. And I think that's a mistake. And that's something else you turn over to your higher power, you do the best you can on what seems right to you at the time, but that's, I don't know what else you can do. Well, I do know what else you can do. You can take care of them. You can wipe their noses and their butts for them and try and, you know, try and make them as comfortable as possible, but I think that's a mistake. Absolutely. I wouldn't have got very far if that had been my case. Yeah. I'd probably still be out there. And that, from my point of view, would be a tragedy. Guys like you are, are really the assets for the future of the program. Well, thank you, Bill. Um... So I, I come in contact with a lot of people, and I was this person. Um, what would you say to someone who knows they have a problem of sorts, but doesn't think 
that there's hope for them, like they're stuck in their ways. They'll slow down eventually. They'll change when they need to. What would you just, what kind of advice would you give someone who's in that state of mind and doesn't know if, you know, hasn't hit rock bottom? If they think they can handle it, tell them to go and try it. Think they can handle drinking and partying and drugs, and if they, they think they can handle that, tell them to go to it. <laughs> I like your style. But why that's, do you that's feel. That's not necessarily my style. It's pretty much what the big book says. Yeah. But wh- why do you feel like it's worth it? and why life is better on this side of the the table in your in your 53 years of sobriety well because it gave me everything i i spent a lot of years working inside recovery units and uh, and i loved doing it it was it was not like uh, it was not like working for me it was something that i loved to do and uh and the opportunities to do all of that were right there. It just everything always fell right into place for me, pretty much just the way the book says it will, and for me it did. And I think an awful lot of that was because of my willingness to change. Uh, if I got to a certain point and I would think, change my thinking or I would open my mind to that, that kind of higher power that I believe in, and, and all the opportunity was, was there. I. Uh, I had been sober just about a year when I got my first job offer inside the program. And uh, it was kind of strange, but I ended up as director of alcoholism for a general hospital. And again, in those days, to have an alcoholism program inside a general hospital was close to unheard of. And again, it was starting to happen, but it, you know, it was really one of the, one of the first. When I took that job, I hit the front front page, including pictures uh, of the local papers. You know that would never happen now. You could hire all kinds of counselors and advisors and whatever whatever title you want to give them, but it certainly isn't going to hit the front page of any any newspaper. Just yeah, that's probably true. Um, I know you've kind of touched on this, and I really admire your opinion on it, and I've heard you talk about it numerous times. Um, but what, if you could explain in uh, in detail uh, what the higher power of your understanding looks like or is to you, and I, I understand. I mean, you you did already touch on it, but if you could just explain it a little bit more to people who don't know what to expect or if they're searching for something but not getting that instant gratification or not knowing what they're praying to and I don't know. Hmm. And I don't know what else I can say except what I've already said is I just see it as as energy and uh, And the only the only way to get people to believe that is to point out the people that it's working for, that it's working in their lives, 
and uh, will the void will fill itself. I, I've told some of the guys that I sponsor not to worry about trying to find a higher power. If they just work the steps, it will find you. And it won't necessarily find you at the level that I'm talking about, but it will find you find it at a level that will be meaningful and satisfying for you. And you don't even really have to work at it. All you have to do is work at, work at the program, work the steps. And I've taken a look at a number of other spiritual programs, and for me, the, the 12 steps are the most direct way to make a conscious contact. Do you have anything else you want to add or share with anyone or share some life experience? Hmm. I don't know. Like I said, for me, it, it, it gave me a, a way to work in the, in the recovery process and I love doing it so I, I never felt like I was working you know I was just uh, and the, the job in the general hospital was only the beginning after the general hospital I took uh, actually I got an offer just before I got an offer from the hospital I got an offer to become a parole officer and one of the judges had either heard me speak or somebody had talked to him about me so he insisted that the parole department interview me. And the interview went pretty well until right up to the end and he's, he asked if I had ever been hospitalized for alcoholism. And I said no. And, uh, and he, he asked the same question over and over again in different ways. And I, I, I knew that there was something going on, you know, and what he was looking for was an excuse to not hire me. So he called the clinic and asked if I was ever that five-day clinic that was my first contact with the program and he asked the director of that that clinic if I had ever been a patient there and the guy said yes and I never had been I used to sit in their coffee shop every day but I never was a patient and uh, so he had his ex his excuse to not hire me because I had lied and uh, well, and when I talked to the director of the clinic about it, the guy that had told him that I was a patient, he said, well, you used to tell people that you were, you were an outpatient. And I said, you don't even have an outpatient program. It was just a way of, of explaining, you know, how much it meant to me. And I said, and I did a lot of fundraising for you. And I, I said that if, if they thought that I was part of the program, it made it an easier sale to, to, get, to raise money for you. And, uh, it was so, I, I was never angry with him about it. It was just it was stupid. But stupidity isn't worth anger, I don't think. Now, now you'd get you'd end up in court for doing something like that. With all the hippo laws and all, all of that stuff, no, no counselor or director of a program is allowed to tell stories about you whether you were ever a patient or not a patient. That's that all. That all got changed along the way. Well, that's about all the questions that I have for you, and I really thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. And I don't know if this microphone picked any of it up, but if it did, great. And if it didn't, I learned a lot and had a good time. I do have a one joke to close it out for you, or I guess it's more of a riddle. How do you? 
fit an elephant on a subway? I'll, I'll give you a hint. Oh, wait a minute. I'll give you a hint. You take the S out of sub and the F out of way. No, what out of way? The F out of way. Okay, I give up. Try. Try. Take the S out of sub and the F out of way. I don't get the F out of way bit. There's no F in way? Okay. <laughs> okay. I guess if I just said it, I would have got it. <laughs> well, that's it, folks. There's no F in way. Let's hope that worked. It was 30 minutes.